Welcome to another episode of Through Thick and Thin. I'm Joe, your host. Coming to you from the Granite State, we are waiting for spring and warmer weather. Today we have a treat. I'm joined by David, his daughter Emily, son Jonathan, and daughter Julia. Imagine if your dad was injured in a surfing accident thousands of miles away. What would you do? Well, David and his family are here to talk about that. Hi, I'm on too. Hi, Dad. Hi, David. Hi, Joe. Hi, Hi David. How, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it looks like we have everyone here. So it looks like we have Emily, Jonathan, Julia, and you, David. Emily, you there? We're here. We're all here. Thank you for joining the podcast through Thick and Thin. We set up this podcast to uh, be able to help others who are struggling after experiencing either a spinal cord injury, traumatic brain, or even a stroke. And it's designed to help either couples who are struggling through it or families. And I'm so grateful to have your, your family here to be able to talk about um, what happened, you know, what life was like before your accident, David, what happened during your accident, and just get a snapshot as to what things are like today. Uh, there's no pressure. There are no right or wrong answers. Everybody okay with that? Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Joe, maybe you can tell us your story before I tell you mine and my kids tell you their experiences. Yeah, definitely. I'll make mine real quick. I was swimming uh, in Mexico. I was on vacation with my wife uh, six years ago and a wave hit me the wrong way, toppled me onto my neck and I broke my neck and at the C3 and C4 level. And I drowned immediately and I was paralyzed. And unfortunately no one saw it. So I floated in the ocean down to the next resort and luckily someone pulled me out and Wow. After around 30 minutes of CPR, they brought me back to life, and voila. Wow. I, was bo- I was born again that day. Were you, you were obviously floating right side up. I was tumbling in the water. Um, I was clinically dead for 30 minutes. Yeah, it's just a miracle. And with that, we take every day as a, as a gift and a miracle. That's a good attitude. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So now um, I want to hear your story. So, David, why don't you tell me a little bit about what life was like before your accident? Life was great. I was uh, I was I had a business with my my brother that I was running and we were manufacturers of packaging materials, namely recycled paper and corrugated boxes. And we were growing quite rapidly. And we were on an incentive trip with our sales reps to Hawaii. Basically, the, the reps that earned over, that sold more than their budget were rewarded with a trip. And the first day that we were on the trip, I was in a surfing lesson, and a beginner surfing lesson, and that's where I got injured, in shallow water. That's awful. Sounds like you uh, had quite the company with an amazing culture where you were taking your sales reps to, to, uh, to Hawaii. Well, we took them every different places around the world every year. 
my brothers right now in Hungary, I think, or on a boat cruise on the, on the Danube. So we wanted our sales reps to see the world. And basically, I did that with my kids also before we were injured. Before I got injured, um, every other Christmas time, we would take them, I would take them to a different continent. I'm divorced, so I vowed that I would spend as much time as I could with the kids when they weren't in school. So we saw all the continents, but we're short one. We haven't been to Antarctica yet. So that's the, that's the next challenge. Well, that's pretty remarkable. And I hope that's a goal of yours to be able to get to Antarctica. I hope so. I, uh, I don't know if my son saw what my daughter saw. I think he was too busy playing video games on the cruise ships. Right, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah. And David, you, at the time of your accident, you were living where? I was living in a rented house on a, on a pretty busy street near downtown Montreal. And oh, beautiful. It was beautiful until I got injured. The, because it was rented, I wasn't allowed to put a ramp in, so I couldn't get in the house. So I had to move. So I was in rehab centers until I found another house that I could put an elevator in so I can get up and down the, this, the flights of stairs. And you did I, find a place where you, where you put an elevator in to make it more accessible for you? Yeah, I had to wait six months for it to be installed. So I was in the hospital for 11 months instead of five or six. And wow, this, happened, so, this happened eight years ago. So eight years ago, living in Montreal, things were great, going on trips around the world, literally. And how many children do you have, David? You're speaking to all three of them. Excellent. And uh, why don't we get an introduction from your children? And if you could tell me where you live and what your ages are. So I get started. My name's Jonathan. I live in Montreal. I've pretty much lived here my whole life. And I'm 26 years old. And nice to meet you, Joe. And thanks for sharing your story. Thank you. Hi, Joe. I'm Emily. I'm the oldest. I'm 28. And I'm currently a nomad. <laughs> doing nomad life, living in Omaha, Nebraska temporarily, but I'm moving to Seattle, uh, Washington in a few months for work. Nice to meet you, Emily. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I guess that leaves me. So I'm Julia. Um, I'm 22, almost 23. I'm also in Montreal. I'm still in school, my undergrad. I'm studying sociology and anthropology. And yeah, thank you so much, Joe, for having us. I am excited, and I think that your story is going to help many individuals struggling or families to get a perspective as to what it's like when change literally uh, in, an, in an instant and, you know, trying to navigate those waters. So, David, you have, sounds like, three wonderful children, and they were all with you on the trip to Hawaii this time? None of them. None of them were with me. I was with a girlfriend at the time. So I've, I've been divorced for almost 18 years. So I had a new girlfriend, took her with me to meet all the, the business associates and have a good time. And on the first day I got injured. So I don't know what my kids' reactions were to my injury, but I'm sure they were scared out of their minds. So, I, I can only imagine that's a phone call you just do not want to get at any time of day. Yeah. Who called yeah. you guys? Jimmy called you? 
my brother. I I had heard from mom. I was still in I was in high school at the time, um, and mom came to pick me up from school and and told me, and I didn't really understand the scope of it. Um, I'd never really been you know like exposed to someone directly with a spinal cord injury, so I didn't really know. And I'm sure Emily and Johnny can kind of say the same. So yeah, I think it definitely was a shock. But yeah, for me, it was mom who told me. I she was. She would pick me up as well. So mom told you guys, Emily. I was um I was in college in Halifax. I remember I was getting ready for um school, and I'm pretty sure mom called me, and then Jimmy called me right after and let me know what he knew, which was very little that you had a spinal cord injury. Um, and I remember I, I, my mind, I knew a little bit about that. I study psychology. So I, I, I've done a lot of biology classes and things like that. So I have, I knew what a spinal cord injury was and I was terrified. And I remember I got on a flight to go that night. Um, and my, I couldn't even pro I, I couldn't even book my own flight. I was just, I remember my friends had to book my flight for me because I was obviously just unwell and terrified. Yeah. And then I came home that night and I remember Jonathan, I picked you up with mom in the car. If you remember that part too. And then dad wasn't home for a while. I was, yeah, in a, I was in a, I was in a coma in and out for 10 days in a Hawaii hospital. The worst part. Yeah. So in and out of a coma and, uh, David, did you have your uh, surgery in Hawaii, I imagine? I had my first surgery there. I shattered the fourth vertebrae, C4, and they had to fly in different neurosurgeons from around Hawaii to put back the pieces as many as they could. And then 10 days later in Montreal, they did another surgery to fuse C1 and C2. So I have titanium rods in my neck so my neck is immobile as well. So I've had two surgeries. So C1 and C2. And yeah. what is your status? Are you a tetraplegic, quadriplegic, paraplegic? I don't know the difference between tetra or quadra. They're the same I'm... thing, Dad. Tetra and quadra are like different words for the same thing. He's, he's quadriplegic. And do you get around in a powered mobility device or are you yes. able to use your arms? Okay. You have a joystick that controls the wheelchair? Yes. Okay. Um, use of your hands to be able to feed yourself or move your arm? My arms, my arms move, but my hands don't reach my mouth. So my hand, my fingers don't move. So they're paralyzed. But he's so working no. on it in physio every week. Yeah, but it's still, nothing's connected. So yeah. I, I have 24-7 caregivers that do the feeding and all that lovely stuff. Yeah, that, that's required. Um, but keep on with your occupational therapy or physical therapy because... I do, I do physio three times a week. So Good for you. Keep the body moving and you just, you never know, you know what's going to happen with science or technology or medicine. Um, you know, you can't live life every day waiting for that next thing, but you do have to have hope all the time. I have hope. I have a lot of hope. I think it's an annoying to a lot of people how positive I am about the, about life and how it's, it's, a, it's a major inconvenience, 
but it's still not it's not life threatening. Yeah, you know? it's life altering in in my opinion, but definitely not life threatening. Well, what what gives you the hope, David? Because a lot of us through this type of a situation in life, it does change things, and for a lot of people, it becomes a situation where people can go into a, a status of depression for months or years and sometimes it's really rough so to hear from someone that is uh, very optimistic and hopeful and and positive uh you're definitely an outlier on the on the um on the scale but you know you're much like myself and i'd like to hear what gives you the hope well i, I i'm no one told me that this is um that I'm going to die from the injury. So that alone gives me enough hope to try and figure out how to live. So I, I've, I've been pretty lucky. Um, I've had ups and downs. I mean, um, depression, maybe for a moment or two, I feel like, what's going on? Why can't I figure this out? I had a, I had a problem with autonomic dysreflexia a couple of weeks ago where my nose just didn't stop running. And it was for two hours, no one could get it under control until they finally guessed that they should check my blood pressure. And it was basically autonomic dysreflexia. That was the, the root of the problem. It was telling me that I have to treat my low blood pressure to stop my nose from running. And wow. AD is, is not fun, but it's great that you were able to figure that out. And it, it was just coming from your blood pressure. Two of my kids were there, and basically I was I was in tears. It was I just couldn't figure out, and neither could the caregiver what was going on. I mean, the caregiver was fantastic. She even stayed overnight when it wasn't her shift to make sure I was okay. So I'm surrounded by good people, but autonomic dysreflexia is so wildly uh, variable that you can't just give your family simple instructions to say, if my nose is running, it means my blood pressure is low. Could mean I have a cold, it could mean I'm sick, it could mean a lot of different things, but no one ever guessed it was because I was having low blood pressure. So that, that, that's that, right. That's that's tough. Yeah. That's right, it is. And you know, part pardon my French, but sometimes life is just a shit show for us every day with stuff that can go wrong. I don't know if that's how it is for you. Well, it just seems to be one more, um, uh, how do you say it, inconvenience after another um, for a certain while. And then the road gets smoother. So when the road gets smoother, I'm much happier and I'm far more in control. Hey, I'm like you, I'm sure. I don't want to be a burden. I want my kids to travel. I want them to study. I want them to have boyfriends, girlfriends, and be happy like you and I probably were when we were kids at their age. That's right. And David, speaking of your kids, I'd like to hear a little bit more from uh, Emily, Jonathan, and Julia about after they heard the news about dad being in the hospital, when was the first time that you were actually able to see your dad and, and tell me a little bit about that experience? I think it was about two, two weeks or something after I got home to Montreal. I mean, when I came back from college, I knew I wasn't going to be seeing my dad um, for a while because he, he hadn't been airlifted. He wasn't medically stable enough to be airlifted yet. And he was having spinal fusion surgeries. So 
I just wanted to be around my family for like all of those uncertainties and risky surgeries and things like that. And then I remember he had his spinal fusion surgery. We were all together waiting for the news on that. It was hard not to be there and, and waiting on uncle Jimmy to give us any updates at all. Um, that was tough. And I remember two weeks or something after his next spinal fusion and dad, you could corroborate that if that timeline checks out. But I remember then you were airlifted to Sacre-Cœur and we were all at the hospital waiting for you in that waiting room. Do you guys remember that? And I do remember that. We had yeah. someone come and talk to us to prepare us about what we were going to see. And then I'll never forget when they brought us out to your room, you were next to an elderly man. Both of you were on ventilators and it took me a, a good second to recognize which one you were. I couldn't tell, you know, who you were versus this old man. Um, that's how different you looked. And it was very scary to see you that way. And I don't think that you were awake for, you stayed in that state for a while, I remember. And then I think a few maybe days later, you opened your eyes and we were able to communicate, you know, through blinking a little bit, but you were pretty sedated and um, yeah. Yeah. And just from that too, just something that I remember was when you did open your eyes and we were trying to find ways to communicate, we took the alphabet kind of, and just like we would run through the letters and you would blink when you wanted to use that letter for whatever it was. Um, I just definitely remember that because it was just jarring to see you not communicate with us like you usually do. And it just, that was definitely a huge shift. Um, were, you, but I, were, you, were you happy when I was able to understand, to blink, so that I could communicate that way? Yeah, I mean, just because I knew that it was still you in there. Um, but I guess it was just an adjustment of how you were communicating. But at least that was only for a temporary period of time. And you had to work to get your vocals back. And um, I remember you having to do those uh, kind of what's the word, like the breathing techniques. Do you remember those, Dad? You had to breathe into a tube and it, the ball had to reach the top. Um, oh, I, I totally remember that. That was like a uh, the opposite of a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> I also yeah. remember before you got extubated, we all had no idea if you were going to be able to talk or if your voice would have been paralyzed too. And I remember that being a big fear of all of our when you were getting, we wanted you to get extubated, obviously, but you know, the uncertainty of what would come after that. Right. Yeah. Hey, Joe. Yes, David. Thanks for bringing back all of these wonderful <laughs> memories. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's difficult. I've got a family. I have three sisters, a wife, mom and dad are still alive. And for them, it was a very scary time, and I'm reliving a lot of this now myself. Um, I remember when I woke up from my coma after I was med-flighted, and it was a very difficult time. I had a trach, so I could not communicate with my wife. They were trying to read my lips. Um, it, was a, it was a very, very trying time. Nobody could provide answers. 
as to whether or not I'd be off a ventilator. I'm sure your family was experiencing much of the same, at least it sounds like it, based on what I've heard so far. Pretty much. Why did you get a tracheotomy? Well, I was not able to breathe on my own, so um, that's why they had to put put me on a vent. And um, I they removed the trach after 10 days, and then it was speech-language pathology, SLP, to be able to um, you know, build up my lungs. To And I was using a spirometer as well. That's the machine where you breathe into yes. um, or, or breathe or, 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 or inhale. I forget whichever one it is, but um, it was not fun. And um, then we had to go through tests to um, be able to allow myself to eat one day because I was on a G-tube. And I was aspirating everything that went down my throat. So um, it, was a, it was a long process. And I'm sure you were probably in the same boat. I was, for sure. And Jonathan, how, what was your first experience like when you saw Dad? Yeah, I mean, I, there's, a lot I, uh, there's a lot I don't even remember. Just like maybe I, maybe I had a trauma or just lack of memory. But I do remember being at the hospital and seeing him like with and not him not being able to speak and uh, very similar to what julia was saying where i remember we would use the alphabet to get him to talk and and then even when he started talking his voice was like very very weak so and, and what was the the family talking amongst yourselves about at that time were, do you remember any other conversations i don't i don't remember really me too honestly it's pretty crazy but if I really try to think back, maybe, but for the most part, it feels like a blur. I don't know, Emily, do you kind of remember anything? Um, I remember I remember when we had the discussion with the lead orthopedic surgeon or physiatrist at Sacre Coeur, and they were saying that they were giving us the statistics and the probabilities of, you know, you being able to blink on your own, you being able to talk on your own, you being able to walk or use your hands. And I remember like the walking thing was something that we all, we all just didn't even know if you, that was ever going to happen again. But I remember being stunned when they said that there's like a, I forget, like a very. I remember small, it was like a five, five to ten. Yeah, point five or something yeah. percent chance. Of able, five. Yeah, be able to move your hands again, and I remember thinking like that was not even something that I had initially considered, and that was a really hard conversation. I remember us talking about how you have a long road to recovery, but there was a lot of hope that you would walk again, and. Um, I remember talking about the logistics of like how long you'll probably be in the hospital and, and things like that with like us and Jimmy. And then I remember Joanne, my dad's sister was there too, having these conversations with us. And um, some, some of it though, like I, I don't even remember talking all that much while all of this was going on at the same time, you know? Um, I felt like all of us were just at loss of words of, the unknowns and, um, you know, not knowing 
a lot and and trying to learn about what was going on, but also feeling like any information was just uncomfortable to get at that point. So a lot of times we just weren't talking like we didn't, there was nothing to say almost, if that makes sense. How, how was your mom when, when, when I was unconscious? I think she was pretty good at Yeah, I was just going to say, I remember, um, I think this was like a few days after we had found out dad and she was just making us dinner. And I don't think any of us like said a word. And I think mom was trying to give us space kind of to process everything. But she was also kind of trying to keep our spirits up. And um, she drove us a lot to the hospital. And sorry, I'm already kind of getting emotional, but... Oh, t- take your time. Take your time. I know this is really difficult. It, it's bringing back memories when you were at a heightened emotional state then, and it's bringing that back. So I understand and appreciate you sharing. You know, if there's something that you don't feel comfortable about, um, we, we don't have to go down that path. And I appreciate everything that you're, you've been sharing so far. I remember, Joe, jo, I remember that one of my kids said to me, they just spoke to their uncle Jimmy, my older brother, and they asked Jimmy, am I gonna die? And Jimmy goes, yes, but not from this injury. And that, <laughs> that, that gave me a lot of strength. That really helped me focus. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you broke your neck, right? And how bad can life be to, uh, you know, moving forward, you've, you've already gone through probably the worst that we'll ever go through in life, right? Pretty much, yeah. And and now, do you remember, David, what the doctors were telling you? Were you you were probably heavily sedated? You know, what what do you remember about what the prognosis was going to be and what your life might be like? Probably a month after I got injured, they I switched facilities to another rehab center, and the doctor there um, told me uh, in a very um, in a very dry manner. You only have 11% chance to walk again, and I'm not going to waste my time with you. I have more important clients to take care of. Fun, eh? Um, I am at a loss for words, and that's very unusual. That's a real, a real piece of work. So I asked, I asked him to do us both a favor and let me switch doctors real quick. And he was happy to do that. Good, so, good for you for making that yeah. switch. That's a, what an awful experience. One of the hardest things to do was to learn how to live with a heavy dose of, uh, what do you call it, morphine. So I was taking Dilaudid, which is a, a, real, a real overdose of painkillers. And I said, let's try so that I can stay awake more than four or five hours a day, I would be sleeping all the time. So I basically begged my doctors to wean me off of it, which I eventually did. So, Good for you. Um, Those drugs are awful in general, but for spinal cord uh, injury survivors, it it can be the kiss of death sometimes. So good for you, David. Yeah. And and what, so tell me a little bit about your rehab. How long were you in the hospital total? And, and what was that experience like for you? 11 months. And it was totally exciting. <laughs> Kidding. It was, uh, it was, I was 
bedridden for most of the time. I remember the first time they took me out in a sling. I felt like I was like a, a puppet. You know, they 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 switched me into a chair and I remember it hurting big time. But I remember saying, hey, at least I have hope. I can get into a chair. What could I do in the chair? And they worked hard with me. They tried to help me do manual wheelchairs, uh, wheelchair movements. They put Velcro on my hands, but, but the Velcro never stuck. So they had to give me a joystick. So it was, uh, uh, they had to feed me. And I, I couldn't believe how difficult it was for the staff to put food in my mouth after a while. You know, I, had, I could only eat, I could only drink um, um, with su supplements. So it became thicker. So I, I remember that. It was yeah, gross. I know. And I would spit it all up. It's disgusting. I am so grateful I never had to have that thickened stuff with people around me at the table eating wood. And I, I vowed that I'd do everything in life to, to never have to go down that path of drinking that nasty stuff. You're lucky because what you, what you wish for doesn't always come true when it comes to this injury. It basically, um, it basically dominates your thought processes, I would imagine. Definitely did for me. It does. A lot yeah. goes through our mind when, you know, after the injury, you know, I, much like you, I owned a business and you're, you're trying to think of, well, how am I going to support myself? Um, the biggest one is who's going to take care of me? Like who in their right mind is going to get me out of bed every day, get me ready for the day, feed me throughout the day, give me pills pretty much every three or four hours. I don't know if that was going through your mind as well, David. In a different way. Mine was basically, um, I don't want my kids to take care of me. I want somebody else to, and I can afford it. So I basically made it very clear to my children. It's not their responsibility to take care of me. It's mine. So you guys got to live your own lives. And basically it was one kid was away at school, Emily, and the other two were in school. And I didn't want them to get too distracted from that. And I think it worked. So I was basically focused on seeing how to hire a team of caregivers so they would take care of me. You know, you, you, I don't know if your wife took care of you, but I didn't, even if I was married, I wouldn't want my wife to have taken care of me. That would have been awful for her. So. It is. I've had many discussions with other couples who have had it. You know, one person has an injury and some can't afford to have 724 care. And ultimately, the spouse ends up being um, you know, the, the caregiver, the primary caregiver. And that has broken up more couples because of the stress that comes with that. So I'm very grateful that you were able to get help and that you did not involve your, your children in being, you know, being that resource because that could have tested those relationships in a very bad way. I think we all get along very well. So I think I made a good decision. It's hard on them, but it's it definitely would have been a lot harder the other way if they had to if they had to switch shifts and take care of me. That would I, be. I just do want to clarify. We we have actually been in situations for sure that we have been needing to be the primary caregiver for my dad. Um, Rarely, Julia but and I, Julia and I specifically. Um, you know, 
if a caregiver quits or um, because, you know, we don't, or my parents are divorced. So a lot of that did actually fall on us, I will say. Um, and maybe not physical caregiving, but I identify definitely as an like emotional caregiver for my dad. And there was a lot of things that we did need to do, obviously, when everything happened. So um, yeah, it was, we we're very lucky and fortunate that we were able to have caregivers, but a lot of the managing of the caregivers, a lot of dealing with the situations when a caregiver wouldn't show up or quit or things like that. A lot of it did fall on, on us at times. Agreed. Thank you for clarifying that. There are a lot of logistics um, that, that go into our daily lives, David. I often refer to myself as an Amazon package being passed from handler to handler sometimes because between nurses and home health aides and physical therapists and the night person who comes in or the afternoon person who comes in, um, like, yeah, I do feel like a package with a UPC code on me sometimes. I feel like I'm the most popular man in the Philippines. <laughs> there you go. I don't think you need to explain that. I'm using my own imagination and yeah. I got it going right now. And so you were 11 months in rehab. What was it like when you finally got the green light to go home? It was euphoric. I wanted to get, I wanted to get the hell out of there so fast. Um, I lived in, a, I moved into a new house. So I had a, an enormous uh, house with enough bedrooms for my kids, enough place for the caregivers, a big kitchen. I had a big pool in the back. So at least life can go back to normal. Maybe not for me, but for my family. So I felt like I was back to where I started from before I got injured, but in a wheelchair now. That's Good for I'm you. Saying. And you're still in Montreal, David? I am. I, I sold that house. And now I live in a senior's residence that I don't really particularly care for. It's too small and the food sucks. And uh, and it's on a it's it's on the top of a hill, so it's very difficult for me to move around at ease around here. Snow too. You live in New Hampshire, right? I sure do. Where? I live just uh, about a, an hour's north of Boston, so I'm right on the okay. border in a town called Hampstead, New Hampshire, near Salem. Okay. There's a Hampstead in Montreal too. It's probably colder than the Hampstead in New Hampshire would be my guess. I would probably. think so. Yeah. Yes, and, and getting around in our wheelchairs in the wintertime sucks. Yeah, they don't make wheelchairs with snow tires. That's for Especially sure. Especially with our, with our roads. We're notorious for having awful roads, so that's also another hurdle. It can be a challenge. And so, David, if you don't mind me asking... You had a beautiful home with a pool. Why did you move to a senior center? Because I didn't have adequate overnight caregivers. I had people who just stood around and watched me cough, and they couldn't do the Heimlich maneuver, and they didn't know how to read. Uh, they didn't know how to do certain troubleshooting methods, and I thought that my life was in unnecessary danger if I kept those people. I, I still have them, but now I have a a button I can call in case these people can't handle it. So I have a nurse or a, a, a doctor close by. And it sounds like 
getting help for you is just as much of a challenge as it is for myself and most of the other people that I speak with. Are there any um, helpful tips that you can share with people who are listening in about how to go about finding caregivers that are really looking out for you and your best interest, David? I think my kids can answer that as well as me. But my guess would be to find someone who genuinely cares about you. It's not easy to find. They have to know what it's like to be in yours and my position, Joe. They have to know what it's like to be in bed and not be able to scratch your own nose or or your eye because you can't reach it. I'm assuming you can't either. Can you? Well, I can. I'm, I'm, everybody is different. Um, I'm fortunate where I can have some movement out of my left arm and I can get it up to my face. Sometimes I can't quite scratch my eye if it's itchy and that actually triggers AD in me. So my body goes through just all kinds of crazy things. Um, but, you know, every, like I said, everyone's different and we rely on people for certain things. We try our best in therapy to be able to get to a point where we can be um, a little bit uh, able to take care of our own bodies. And that's just a journey that we're on, right, David? Absolutely. I mean, to get back to your question, the answer to the question would be find someone who um, is less concerned about when their holidays are and, and uh, when their next break is. They need to be able to focus on the fact that they're there to be your hands and your eyes and your, your feet when, when needed and know the, the routines and be willing to learn about how to do the difficult procedures, transferring and uh, changing. I have a colostomy bag, so emptying the bag and uh, checking bed sores to make sure that they're properly uh, dressed and cared for. So I would say that of the six six or seven caregivers that I have, three are pros. The rest need a lot of work. Yeah, they, they need a lot of training no matter what. And if they're not willing to work with us and yet you because know, there are certain ways that things have to get done, it's going to be a, a very frustrating time for us and, and can be a struggle at times. At times it's a big struggle, but most of the time it's fairly um, it's fairly um, uh, acceptable, I would say. What do you guys think, Emily, John, and Julia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there's definitely, we've gone through a vetting process for sure. Um, and it's taken basically years to kind of get a solid team together. Um, we've definitely had some great caregivers and we've had some that, you know, have fallen asleep during their shift and just scary things like that. So that it definitely takes a lot of trusting from you to basically strangers. Um, and, but, you know, sometimes they turn into basically family members to us. And it's definitely very important to have a close relationship with, with your team. Um, Cause at the end of the day, we're just all working towards being there for you and helping you out. I would add that this has probably been one of the bigger struggles for my dad. Um, you know, in terms of any, anyone who really knows, you know, someone who has a spinal cord injury can only try to appreciate how, you know, uh, control and relinquishing all forms of control and the only little bits of control that you have left, 
after an injury like that is an incredibly challenging experience. And, you know, I think with caregivers and needing to ask for help and learning that you need to ask for help, learning how to communicate that. And it, it, I think that's been a really hard thing for my dad um, throughout this journey um, is, you know, when something's not done the exact way that my dad would prefer, it can just be exhausting. And if you need to have something repeated over and over again with, you know, bare, you know, minimum <laughs> daily activities of life and, and, you know, things like that, it's a really hard um, thing, you know, to, to work through. And it, I think has been very, very, frustrating for my dad and for all of us, honestly, um, at times, it's definitely been one of the harder parts of this journey. I think I lose, I lose my temper. We're um, very rarely, but to me, it's, it seems like too much. You know, Jonathan said the other day that he's, he, he doesn't think I lose my temper much at all. And that was after I did lose it. So made me feel a lot better that, uh, you know, when I do lose it, there's ample reason to lose it. I probably lose my temper more than you, Dad, and I don't have a reason to. So you're very yeah. patient. It's, it's remarkable. Still hard. Still sometimes very exasperating. You know? I mean, I've, I've learned how to, how to minimize my, my, my anguish. I wake up in the morning, takes 35 to uh, 55 minutes to get me out of bed fully dressed. And from what I've heard, that's pretty quick. And I think it's painfully and agonizingly slow. Uh, I don't know how you compare with that, Joe, but that's my life. Yes, mine is similar. Um, I have a home health aide who comes by in the morning and it usually takes between an hour and a half to two hours um, for them to get me out of bed, showered. I don't have a colostomy bag, so I do a bowel program. Um, yeah. So that plus uh, doing some range of motion, getting me dressed and feeding me um, because I'm not able to feed myself cereal and spill it all over the, the place. But yeah, about an hour and a half to two hours. And, you know, it's with my wife that it's rinse, repeat. Um, but as long as it's getting done in a professional manner, then, you know, I know that it's just a, a necessary aspect of, of my life and getting me ready to go to physical therapy so that, you know, I can continue to fully stretch out my muscles and keep my bones strong so that one day um, we can use them. And, you know, that's the hope, right, David? Yeah. How old are you, Joe, if you mind my asking? So I will be 52 in about a month. So my accident yeah. happened when I was 46 years old. Right. Okay. So I'm 62 and it happened when I was 55, 54. Sorry. So, and how is your body? Um, what, what, what does your body feel like when you were 56 compared to 62? You know, with a spinal cord injury, of course. I don't, I don't feel most of my body now. <laughs> So I don't know how to answer that question other than that I probably gained a lot of weight in my stomach, even though I'm not, oh, I'm not overweight. I just have no physical form. I, I guess I got a nice little 
jiffy pot belly. Yeah, yeah that, that's called the quad gut, David, just for oh, your reference. Okay. And we all okay. have it. We all do. Yeah. And that that frustrates me because I used to be very active. So. And now for your own activities, can you move anything below your level of injury? I can move my arms. I don't know if that's technically below my injury, but that's about it. My neck, no. My arms, yes. Yeah. And I can move my chest muscles a little bit. His C1 and is, uh, is fused Fuse. in the skull. So he has no movement, you know, left or right or down and up that he can do. Um, so he can't, you know, even look to look at you or turn to you if you're talking to him other than with his eyes. Um, you need to be looking at him um, directly in order to, you know, have a conversation with him at eye level, basically without <laughs> him straining his eyes, trying to look, you know. Yeah, right. right now I'm competing with their computers to look at me. So, and I'm losing that usually. Well, it's a miracle, David, that with a C1 injury that you're not on a ventilator, that you're able to breathe on your own and you're having this conversation with us today. You think it's a miracle? Not sure. Maybe my injury, um, the C1, it didn't break. It just turned. So they had to return it to where, so I didn't have a, a scoliosis or, or a bent spine. So they, they said to me, do you want a, a bent spine where you're kind of hunched over or do you want to have the surgery? So I said, which is better? They go the surgery. So that's what I did. You're so lucky because when you have anything going on with your C1, it could be millimeters away from anything. And, you know, when you're having, when you had that injury. So I think it's a miracle. Great. I'll take it. And so tell me a little bit, David, about what life is like now. You moved into the senior center how long ago? Six months ago. I think maybe, maybe more. more, more, maybe eight months. Yeah, it's hard. It's very hard. I'm the youngest one in the building by, I think, 12 years. Ugh. Are you and, able to uh, make friends there? Easily. It's not hard. Most of them are very pleasant, but they're, they're not my peers, so it's very difficult. COVID to, has made it more difficult for you, too, right? What's that? COVID has made it a little more difficult there as well. Well, that's over, the lockdown. Yeah. So. I'm saying over the past few months, yeah. 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 COVID has been awful for those of us in, you know, who are either homebound or bedbound or just don't get out much. Um, I talk to people every day and COVID was and continues to be a major, major struggle um, for folks who aren't very mobile. I don't know over the last couple of years when you were living in your house, if it was the same way. Yeah, at times uh, I have to be very, I have to be very protective of who could come over and who couldn't. And certainly my kids wouldn't let anybody come over if they thought it was going to compromise my health. So I appreciated that, which uh, other than that, I don't know how else to answer that. Yeah. You know, when you, when you have six or seven caregivers coming in from different areas, you're not really too, um, too protected anyway. So only takes one person, right, David? My brother gave me COVID. 
in December. So he was, he had a cough and he came over to say hi. And then when he left, I got really sick. And two of my caregivers got sick too. And me. <laughs> and you, Julia. She had it twice. Jonathan yeah. had it once. Yeah. But thankfully you had um, the less aggressive strain. Yeah. Delta. So you had, you had Omicron? No, not Delta. Delta. You had Omicron. 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 Well, yeah. you're, you're very lucky that you're here talking with us today because uh, when we have a compromised respiratory system with COVID, it, it can really turn downhill fast. So glad that you're here, David. Thank you. Glad you're here too. Oh, thank you. Um, and from your kids, um, what is life like today with dad? Well, I think we all have kind of our own own lives going on and we, we visit our dad often. And uh, I mean, Emily's out of town, but I'm just always speaking with him. So it's kind of, it's as normal as it maybe could be with the severity of injury my dad had. So. And also with COVID. I mean, at the very beginning of all this, it, we were, I mean, just as anyone else was, but definitely we had to put up an extra wall of protection. And I mean, it was like just very... I was incredibly limiting who to who I was seeing because I knew I would be with my dad. Um, but I mean, over the past few months, as things have kind of settled down, it's been a lot easier to, you know, go to his and visit him. And um, it definitely, in comparison to a few years ago, I think things feel a little more normal. Um, and I'm just lucky that I'm able to still, you know, have a relationship with you dad where I can come hang out at yours and come see you after classes or whatever it is. So um, I think as Johnny said, it's kind of difficult because Emily's not here, but you know, we try to keep her in, in the loop if anything's going on and they FaceTime pretty often. So I think we all kind of have our own ways of maintaining um, our relationship with you dad. So. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I try and make it as pleasant for them as possible. I don't want them to, feel bad or sorry for me when they come over here. I want them to feel like they're not coming to visit someone who's sick and uh, in, and incapable of doing anything somewhat normal. We go out once in a while, we do things, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're planning a party for Emily's graduation in June and seem, seems uh, things seem to be fun uh, towards that end. We're going to see a circus Cirque du Soleil in, uh, at the, around the same time. So we're planning things. We're going to a show this week. Exactly. On Wednesday, we're going to see a couple of, I want to see a show in Montreal. So I do get out and it's, uh, there's a lot of planning that's involved. You probably know that, Joe. I mean, we went to visit restaurants for Emily's, and get, for Emily's graduation party and the girl who hosts the events said, yeah, you can come in here. So he said, can we come and see? So we went down to see, and there's a step. So I can't get in. <laughs> yeah, it can so. be frustrating. We, we need to be prepared at all times and throw that small ramp that we have, one of the folding aluminum ones in the back of the van. So if somebody tells us that their place is accessible, we need to make sure that it's accessible for us because accessible in general and accessible for us are two different things. Mm -hmm. Do you have one of the, where did you get that wrap? I believe we got it on Amazon. We have two of them. Um, one is a two foot 
folding ramp. It's aluminum. It's fairly light. And the other one is a three foot because there is a step down to go from my kitchen to the back deck. And I'm able to navigate with a three foot ramp down that. And there is a very small lip where my garage door goes out to the driveway where I use the two foot ramp. And we throw the two foot one in the back of the van because we've been to more places where even just a you know, a two inch high threshold on a, on a door going into a restaurant, it's our chairs much. will, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bounce around and hit the side of it. So, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and we just need to make sure that we dot all the I's and cross all the T's before we go on these adventures, right? We didn't cross the T's yet. Julia, when you come over, we're going to look on Amazon for that thing. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, I think I think that's also one of just my biggest sources of frustration for for you, Dad, and just for anyone that's in a wheelchair or just you know needs to can't get around like a an able bodied person is. It's just how the world is just so set up for people who are not disabled, and it's just the smallest things that can come between you know Dad or or you, Joe, just trying to enjoy your day like anyone else would. So I think that's just a huge thing for me, just as I'm navigating um, life post my dad's accident. It's just kind of seeing, like as corny as it sounds, but you never really, it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who with who's disabled when it's never really affected you personally. But that's just kind of been one of the biggest things for me is just how difficult it is to do simple things that everyone else can do. Um, and I'm sure Johnny and Emily, you guys can, kind of attest to that too it's just yeah, it's the it's small things that that get in the way of simple pleasures it's even worse and i guess i don't know in, in the u.s it's they're a lot more set up than in canada and montreal specifically it's really mm -hmm. there's a lot of places my dad can't enter and a lot of issues so yeah, i agree there's a lot of systemic you know infrastructure that just does not accommodate people even basic you know, things in the U.S. that would be like ADA um, approved mm -hmm. or, um, you know, like needing to have an elevator in every building. You know, that's not something that's a situation in Montreal at all. In fact, even sidewalks <laughs> are completely unwalkable at times. And um, those things that, you know, you really don't, yeah, I guess, consider but even like going on a walk can be a stressful thing in certain neighborhoods um, for those reasons, which, yeah, I, I agree is really upsetting and frustrating and direly needs to change. But that's just the reality of, and even taxis, you know, things like that, getting around transport, um, it, it adds, it, it really adds a lot of layers of complexity to you know, just trying to live your life as, as functionally as possible with a spinal cord injury. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it makes it a lot harder on, on, you know, those, those populations. Two other, two other things to add, Joe, one is, um, two of my children, I can't even get into their apartments. Yeah. So I've never, never seen where they live. So that's, that's a hard thing. And the other thing is, um, uh, I have my own van, um, so I do have a handicap, a wheelchair accessible van, but I don't have enough drivers. I have 
to three of my caregivers, sorry, two of them can drive, four cannot. So it becomes, I have a curfew at 3 p.m. every day because the girl who works in the afternoons doesn't drive, but she's, she's been trying to learn. Is there any public transportation, David, that can help you out? It's unreliable. They 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 have subsidized transportation, and they also but they they give you a three hour pick up and drop off window. Yeah, so even like the even subway stations. There's only a select few that are accommodating, and it's just a, a mission to to get around using public transportation here. There are taxis that yeah. I could call in case of of an emergency like that, and They're I would use that. They're very expensive. Yeah. But base, basically, I get Julia to come and drive me, and the caregiver sits in the back seat. Yeah, that can be frustrating. So, David, with all these things that go on in our lives that seem to be obstacles, you are a very positive person. What makes you happy in life? To be able to move around and do things like I used to be able to do, you know, contribute to my kids' well-being and to to do things that make me happy. Like I watch sports, I play Scrabble, I do Wordle, even though Julia's much better at it than I am. (laughs) Stuff like that, you know, small victories are much bigger now than they used to be. So keeps me happy. Getting out of bed makes me happy. Seriously. We have to, we, we have to get up every day. We cannot spend a day in bed. Otherwise it's, Unfortunately, it becomes too easy to stay in bed every day once you do that. That's true. So I don't want to put your kids on the spot. And I'll ask this question. If you don't have an answer, that's quite all right, because I've never asked it before for any of my guests. Mm-hmm. But for your your children, what would you hope for dad? Mm-hmm. I can answer that. I mean, obviously, i a life where he can feel somewhat independent and in control um, and able to engage in activities, even though the engagement may be different than it was before. Finding new creative ways to capitalize on his strengths that he does still possess and find ways to use those strengths in his everyday and, um, you know, defeat some of those challenges with some of those strengths. And, you know, there's going to be times too, where we accept that, you know, um, there's ups and downs with this level of injury. It's not just as I'm sure you're aware, Joe, and we kind of touched on this earlier, but it's not really just about the paralysis with these spinal cord injuries. There's, you know, really devastating secondary health conditions and complications that often co-occur with spinal cord injury. And a lot of people don't even know that, Um, you know, like we talked about AD and uh, yeah, AD and then even the bed sores and, you know, other things that can come up. (laughs) And when they do, that's really when life can be very limiting. Um, but, you know, in those times when it does come up that he's able to persevere and, and get through those times and challenges, um, 
and, and, you know, be there for us because he is very, you know, even with the physical limitations, he's one of the biggest supports that I have emotionally in my life. Um, so being present to be, you know, a part of my life and, and all of our lives is kind of what I hope for him. And I think he's doing pretty good at that sometimes, you know, navigating the challenges and overcoming them as he can, even though it's frustrating and moving forward and finding stability during the times when the challenges are fewer, but still present, you know? Yeah, that is, that's really wonderful. And as I say, being in the chair is the easiest part. It really is. Um, everything else that goes on in our lives is far more complicated and difficult than just sitting in a chair all day, not being able to move. So what you've shared is wonderful. How about from your siblings? Any thoughts on that question? Yeah, I mean, I think Emily did a great job at communicating kind of exactly what I'm feeling too, especially just keeping your mind active, Dad, which you do. You're currently in the process of, um, uh, for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, you're planning an event and you're just kind, I think you're happiest kind of when you're giving and, and planning things. And you're always so good at that, like, I mean, all the vacations we went on and just everything, we always just felt super secure with you. You are very on it. Anything that needs to be done, you're always the first to be on it. You're very organized in that way. And I think that kind of just feeds into every aspect of your life. And um, I think it also is just super helpful when you do that for us too. It just, you know, you still feel like our dad, even though situations have kind of changed and, but the relationships remain. Um, and yeah, I also, Dad, I think you might have started to go into this, but one of my biggest hopes for you is to eventually make it out to California, um, if you wanted to talk about that, to uh, undergo. Well, I think you after, should. After Jonathan answers, I think we should talk about that. Yeah. But yeah, just to close on that, I think that's, I mean, we'll talk about it, but something that you're looking forward to. And I think that could be a big source of happiness in your life. And yeah, I mean, we'll get a little more into it. So Johnny, if you want to go ahead. Yeah, so I think, I think um, first and foremost, like health-wise, um, that's what really what I, I'm hoping for. Just maybe, uh, maybe you, you may have the injury for, for life. I hope not. But um, aside from that, there are periods of times where my dad is much healthier and doing a lot better physically than others other times. And he's actually had like the opportunity when he's been healthier to travel before so that first and foremost like that's what i'm hoping for uh, looking forward and aside from that um just areas where you know my dad could um continue to like use his mind and grow and um take on like stimulating projects and take take on things that that you know stimulate him and, ex and excite him so uh, i'm noticing that even more and more these days uh, he's and it's nice that he's on this this podcast and it's uh, great too, uh, uh, Joe. That you're 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 doing this for others and um, just stuff like this, and uh, to continue to be there for us and um, a lot of what my sisters already said. But but yeah. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Emily and David. You are going to talk a little bit about this California trip. Yeah, I was gonna. Um, the, there's a doctor in in Pasadena who's doing a um, uh, scientific uh, discovery uh, experiment well, uh, endeavor endeavor um, for 
um, spinal cord injury victims to um, implant electrodes in the brain, in a certain part of the brain, to be able to, um, with their thought, with their thought processes, be able to control a robotic arm that's not attached to the patient, but can do things for them that they cannot do. And there's been five in the world that have been able to have these implants. And one of them, the first guy that did it, was able to drink a beer with the robotic arm on his own. There's a lady who was a pianist and now can play the piano with the robotic arm. And there's a lot more that can or cannot be done. And part of that discovery process is to have more people undergoing the surgery to implant the electrodes so that this robotic arm can facilitate their thought processes to be able to have the robotic arm as their, as their friend or as part of their body. That's, so, that's incredible, David. And where are you at with the selection process? And do you think you're I actually have, going to go to Pasadena? I have to go through a physical, which should be any, any day now. Um, a lot of questions because it's, uh, it's F, FDA um, protocol. And then I, because I'm a Canadian, I have to get a visa and I have to find a place to live and I have to find a team of caregivers. So I'm quite a long way off from doing that. But if you, if you uh, compartmentalize it, it, it really isn't that far of a stretch. It can be done. Oh. David, don't let those obstacles get in your way. If you truly want to do this, I highly encourage you to find a way to find a place to live and find the caregivers. They're out there. We need to work hard to make that a reality. You know, speaking firsthand, I'm involved in a phase two clinical trial for a spinal cord drug right now, actually coming towards the tail end of it. It's a, it's a nine-month endeavor, and it's very involved in I am forever grateful to you if you're able to do this clinical trial. It might not help us immediately, but it will help someone down the road with the data that they collect. How are you and was it a, is it a risk for you to take this drug? And do your, is your family concerned about that? So I can talk to you offline about that because it would probably take me a couple of hours just to oh. go through everything. It's been very involved. Um, it's a, drug that's administered um, through a spinal tap. So every time I go in, it's, it's a two-day stay in the hospital. But I can chat with you offline. It's a big commitment. But again, if they can collect enough data for my clinical trial and be able to make this drug to fast track it through the FDA so that the next 18-year-old kid who is playing hockey and goes into the boards and gets a spinal cord injury that it can help him or her, you know, this is why I'm doing it. So I am very grateful that you're even considering doing a clinical trial and, and we could chat a little bit more. I can, I can walk you through, you know, my experiences and I hope that it helps you, you know, for when you're in Pasadena. I'm more concerned about my kids. I want them to know that the risk isn't that big and that it's very beneficial for future people, just like you said. That's why I asked. It's not like I'm scared. I'm just, well, I'm, I'm hoping that they're not going to be terrified that dad's going in for brain surgery. I mean, yeah. Anything a, that, 
Oh, sorry. I was going to say any surgery has risk. I don't think it's necessarily that for me. It's more the logistics of moving away, finding caregivers, finding insurance that will cover you as a Canadian citizen in the, in the U.S., making sure that, you know, you have the support um, in a new city. It, it, it's, that's more, I guess, where um, my concerns would be. It's good to know. Yeah, I think it's the logistics that are definitely a little daunting, but I think we're all willing to help you out. We've already kind of started the journey. Um, and we just kind of want to any opportunity to to get you kind of able to to move and do things and, and be autonomous. I think we're more than happy to to help you out on that front. But of course, as with any surgery or any procedure, it's definitely a little it could be a little scary. But I think for the most part, we're just we just want to support you on that. And we're excited for you if it happens. Good stuff. And Joe, I'm planning on doing a podcast or a, or a, an update online uh, almost daily as to my progress. So That's really great, David, because there will be people that will have keen interest in hearing about your experiences. Um, yeah, I don't know what the, the time frame commitment is for you, but people will want periodic updates from you. So if you're able to provide that, um, it will help others who are considering the same procedure. And for your children, it's time because this is dad you know, that we're talking about. This isn't a neighbor down the street. They, it's very evident from this conversation that they love you very much. They care for you. They want to see um, the best for their dad. So I think it's great that we're talking on the podcast, but probably even more um, important that, you know, you get on a Zoom call with your children and you chat with them about you know all of the risks involved and um, the logistics for you know you finding care and finding housing and i'm sure as a family you'll come up with a great plan one way or the other you might even decide that just the timing isn't right for you at this point but as long as everyone's on the same page and the communication is there and, and you have the support one way or the other that's what's most important i think yeah, we're doing absolutely. we're pretty good on that so that's good to know that's great, David. I have a question for you. I've already asked your wonderful kids this question, and I got answers. So I'm going to throw it right back at you. What do you hope for your kids? What do I hope for my kids? That they, that they, um, they continue their lives, they're happy and healthy, and gain uh, knowledge wherever they can and have fun while they're doing it. That's wonderful. And... I can't thank you enough, David, or your children, Emily, Jonathan, and Julia, for your time here today. It sounds like you've got a loving dad. And just the fact that you're on this call speaks volumes about um, how much your family communicates and your willingness to share your story with others is an enormous task. And I'm very, very grateful that you're able to join the call. And I do not have children, I think if I had children, I'd want them to be exactly the way you are, all three of you. You're very loving and very caring. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And very thank nice. you for giving us the opportunity to talk about this. It's, it's really great what you're doing. And, and okay. Joe, can I just add one thing? Because I, I guess you're, you're planning to share this with a lot of others who 
may have had like very similar spinal cord injuries and issues on their uh, like that. And I think it's like just from listening to this podcast, it's it's pretty obvious that it's like not an, it's not easy to go through what my dad has gone through. But as his kids, we're very happy he has continued to like persevere and and the fact that he's in our lives like really has done wonders for us. So um, whoever has something similar is to stay positive. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Daddy even kind of said it before. You're you you think that you're so positive, it could almost be annoying. And I think I think it's amazing. Like as I said, I think I even lose my temper more than you sometimes. And I just think there's so much that anyone can learn from you. And I just think your attitude is great. And it's you're honest about it too. You know, if you're having a rough day or whatever it is, it's it's not like you kind of hide behind that, but you're just able to to be such a positive force in our lives. And I think it's also just kind of what drives you and keeps you going. So I think for anyone listening to this, my dad is definitely some someone you can learn a lot from. Yeah. I'm uh, never going to give up. I'm always going to try. So there you go. David, Thank you're you. an inspiration. And this is going to help a lot of people out. And you may have people who reach out to you to ask how you stay so positive because there are so many that don't. And whenever we can help others out, that just brings a great deal of satisfaction to my life. If I can just help one other person who's struggling with something. And it sounds like you're going to be an inspiration to many, David. So thank you Good. again. Good. Thank you. You're remarkably positive too. And I, I admire you a lot for doing this. So thank you so much. Well, our paths will cross again, David, either online through the interwebs somehow or uh, in person. You're not that far away. We will figure out a way to find a meeting point to get together and have lunch together or dinner or something along those lines. I very much look forward to that. Me too. Likewise. Okay. Thank you so Perfect. much, Joe. Yeah, thank, thank you again. Thank you. Bye. Have a great Sunday. Bye, guys. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Take care. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Through Thick and Thin. Thank you for listening. And thank you to David and his family for sharing their stories with us. We hope that this helps one person or couple or family struggling after an injury or medical diagnosis. Please subscribe and share if you find value in this podcast. Thank you again. And until next time, adios.